0: Hello and welcome to the first episode of the Sussex Local Podcast Series. I'm your host Kat Sims and this is the podcast where we keep you up to speed with the latest news, local charities and fascinating community stories from every corner of Sussex. For many of our listeners, you are likely to be familiar with our publication, Sussex Local Magazine, which is delivered through the doors of 45,000 homes across Arundel, Barnum, Chichester, Pulborough, Midhurst, Petworth and Storrington. You may also have come across our website, sussexlocal.net. But of course, as life as we know it is having to adapt to this ever-changing situation with the coronavirus, and we are all spending a lot more time at home, it's sometimes difficult to feel in touch with the world. So we have decided to collate regular highlights of local news, charity events, Sussex history, competitions, DIY, gardening tips, and more to bring the very best of Sussex directly to you. But it's not all about us bringing stuff to you. We'd really love to hear from you, whether it's with feedback from any of our articles, requests for what you would like us to include in the podcast, or maybe send us some tips and stories for other listeners about what you've been doing in the lockdown. Please get in touch, either by filling in the contact form on our website, sussexlocal.net, or by sending us an email to info at sussexlocal.net. We hope to hear from you. And now, on with the podcast. We are, of course, heading into another week of the government's lockdown extension as we all face the reality of the coronavirus pandemic. However, despite everyone spending more time indoors, there have been some remarkable efforts from local communities to find ways to keep the people of Sussex connected with their communities, even if they're not physically able to be together. If you have a virtual event, please list it on our website or email details to us at info@sussexlocal.net, and we'll be pleased to publicise it for you. Theatre lovers and thespians alike were saddened to hear the news that all theatres across the UK would inevitably have to close as part of the government's lockdown measures. This must have been very disappointing to all those who had purchased tickets for both amateur and professional theatrical events across Sussex. However, Chichester Festival Theatre have announced that they will be streaming some of their scheduled productions online for the whole family to enjoy from home. David Williams's The Midnight Gang, adapted by Brian Elavery, with music and lyrics by John Stilgoe, and the Chichester Festival Youth Theatre production of Beauty and the Beast, adapted by Anna Ledwich, music and lyrics by Richard Taylor, will be the next productions to be streamed online from Chichester Festival Theatre. Especially suitable for family audiences from ages 7 up, both will be available on Chichester Festival Theatre's website for 30 days, starting with The Midnight Gang from 30th of April, and then Beauty and the Beast from 21st of May. And they'll all be free to watch. Chichester Festival Theatre have also announced that in order to connect with as many people as possible in our community, both productions will be captioned for deaf and hard of hearing audiences and Polish language captions will also be available. Audio introductions will help set the scene for blind and partially sighted audiences. With many veterinary surgeries having to reduce their opening hours due to COVID-19, it's never been more important for pet owners to know exactly how to administer first aid to their dogs. To enable dog owners to continue to learn the life-saving skills they need to keep their pets safe, Dog First Aid is now offering virtual interactive live classes. An essential part of being a responsible dog owner is knowing how to help your pet in an emergency. Those who have attended courses in the past say they feel much more confident that they could act to save their dog's life if such a situation arose. However, with social distancing measures in place to prevent the spread of coronavirus, traditional face-to-face classes have had to be shelved in favour of a new, virtual, interactive, live course. Dog First Aid founder, Joe Middleton, says, Dogs can run into danger anywhere they go, and so it's always been important for dog owners to learn the skills they might need in order to administer first aid to their pet. We know that administering the right first aid can literally save an animal's life. But even when the stakes aren't so high, first aid can improve the outcome and reduce recovery time for a sick or injured dog. The courses are fun and informative and include details of how to learn what is and isn't normal for your dog, how to check your dog's vital signs, what to do if their heart stops beating, what to do if they are bleeding, how to help a dog having a seizure, what things you might come into contact with that could poison your dog, how to treat burns, what to do in the event of a road accident, the key actions to stop a dog choking to death, and much more. As April is Dog First Aid Month, there is no better time to sign up and complete a virtual interactive live course. The Dog First Aid course is suitable for those working with dogs as well as pet owners and is CPD accredited. The virtual courses are streamed through a video link allowing participants to ask questions and participate. West Sussex Libraries have said that they know how much libraries mean to the local community, which is why they have introduced a virtual hub of the local library's online services, all accessible from home. There's plenty of family and local history content, resources for home learning, links to the latest offerings from authors and publishers, and heaps more. The planned Petworth Park Antiques and Fine Art Fair, due to open for three days in the middle of May, is now taking, much like everything else, the digital route. An online virtual fair is opening on Friday the 15th of May with an extended run until Sunday the 31st of May allowing international collectors, designers and interested members of the public to sit in their lockdown homes and enjoy all that is on offer. Sales can begin on 15th of May when the virtual Pet Park Antiques and Fine Art Fair opens as originally scheduled. This extra two weeks, the fair would normally have closed on Sunday the 17th of May, gives exhibitors the best chance of doing business at this very difficult time. There is a diverse range of antiques and fine art for sale, as well as links relating to the event and Petworth House. There are over 60 dealers taking part in the virtual fair. Each exhibitor has their own entry showcasing highlighted stock, alongside a link to the dealer's website for visitors to peruse at their leisure and contact the dealer direct. This week, we are looking into the history of Arundel with Mark Phillips. Charming, picturesque and full of history – This market town in West Sussex holds many hidden Victorian secrets.
1: The Victorians are said to have invented our modern idea of Christmas, including Prince Albert, who introduced the decorated fir tree from his native Germany. When Queen Victoria and the Prince visited Arundel in early December 1846, it caused great excitement among the townsfolk. Local historian and town councillor Mark Phillips has compiled this report of their stay it's read by Marion Porter. On Tuesday,
2: December 1st at Fontwell, Henry Charles, the 13th Duke of Norfolk, who had accompanied the Queen and the Prince from Portsmouth in a carriage, rode alongside his son Henry, the Earl of Arundel and Surrey, as he took over the escort of the Royal Cortege for the final leg of the journey to Arundel. At 4.30pm, The Royal Party passed into the town under the huge triumphal arch that was built on the site of the old Watergate, at the lower end of Maltravers Street. The Illustrated London News at this point reported the Queen was wearing a black velvet vessite trimmed with sable fur, an ermine muff, white silk bonnet and a lilac dress. Once through the arch, the cortege was brought to a stop where the mayor and borough authorities were assembled in their new robes. The borough had commissioned these especially for this visit, based on the design worn by the Guildford mayor and authorities. Twelve robes for councillors, black, hemmed with black silk velvet, while the mayor's robe was scarlet trimmed with German sable. The mayor, Howard Gibbon, officially greeted Her Majesty and offered her the town mace, saying, May it please Your Majesty to accept this mace which I, as mayor of this ancient borough, humbly present in dutiful submission to Your Majesty's royal prerogative. Mr Gibbon was the second son of Charles Howard, 11th Duke of Norfolk, known to posterity as the Drunken Duke, and Mary Anne Gibbon, the Duke's long-time mistress. The Queen graciously acknowledged Mr Gibbon, and with a scarcely suppressed, though exceedingly good-tempered smile, returned the symbolic offering, assuring him it was not possible it could be in better keeping. At the castle lodge-gate the Royal Party went through a huge evergreen arch. As they continued on to the castle quadrangle, enormous gas-lit letters burst into flame on the keep, spelling out, Welcome Victoria and Albert. Entering the Grand Entrance Hall, the party was received by Charlotte, Duchess of Norfolk, her two daughters, Ladies Mary and Adeliza, the Duke of Wellington, and several other members of the aristocracy. Victoria's diary notes that they found the castle small but very cheerful. At 8pm and according to tradition, a huge Chinese gong sounded announcing dinner. During the evening a grand display of fireworks was given in the meadow at the foot of the castle hill and the streets were crowded with a gay and well-behaved population. On Wednesday, December the 2nd, Victoria and Albert had breakfast alone, as was usual on such visits. Later that morning, the Duchess introduced her three young children to Victoria, who in her diary describes one of the children, her godchild, also named Victoria, as a funny fat little thing aged three. In the afternoon, Victoria and Albert accompanied the Duke for a tour around the castle gardens, which included a visit to the keep to see the Duke's famous owls. Victoria notes in her diary, Unfortunately, the castle has not been restored in a good style by Duke Charles, the last but one, and Saxon and Gothic architecture are mixed. This walk included a visit to the newly built Castle Dairy, by Swanbourne Lake. Victoria wrote, We lunched with all the company and afterwards took a nice long walk with them all down the slopes walk to a charming dairy, with gardens and a pretty little cottage for the Duchess's use, all so nicely kept. The after-dinner entertainment was provided by the Ethiopian serenaders, who had been hired especially for the occasion. Victoria describes the scene thus. Afterwards, about a hundred people came, and there was some music in the library, the Ethiopian singers singing a number of their songs. The comic was, though laughable, I thought rather tiresome. At 10.30am the next day, the Queen was driven to Petworth House, which Victoria notes, is fine and large, With a handsome suite of rooms full of beautiful pictures but they are badly arranged the royal party arrived back at the castle for luncheon at 2 p.m after which victoria and albert ceremonially planted two trees in the castle grounds this was followed by a stroll around the fitzallen chapel and the other half of the same building which is the parish church of saint nicholas it was noted in the Queen's diary that after dinner, a conjurer performed tricks and we danced a little, concluding with a very merry country dance, which I danced with the Duke. On Friday, December the 4th, the royal party left at 10am, having enjoyed our stay very much. The Duke of Norfolk accompanied the party from Arundel to Chichester on horseback and from there, in a carriage to Portsmouth, where they departed for Osborne House on the Isle of Wight.
0: In the magazine, every month, and on the website, we have a charity and community news section where Sussex charities, groups, clubs, and individuals have a voice. We're now carrying this over to the podcast, so if you'd like us to help publicise what you are doing, then please send us your news to info at sussexlocal.net. Sussex Wildlife Trust have shared a quick, simple, long-lasting, and inexpensive way of creating a home for solitary bees in your garden that should only take you 20 minutes the perfect lockdown activity that you can get involved with from the safety of your home. Providing nesting holes for a few species of solitary bee will make it easy and interesting to observe them. You can do this anywhere in a sunny position such as a windowsill. All you need is a piece of wood at least 75mm thick, an electric drill, and drill bits in a range of diameters from 3mm to 10 millimeters. Making sure you are drilling in a safe place and that the wood is secure, drill randomly placed holes into one side of the wood, as deep as you can, but making sure not to go right through, especially if you are doing it on your best garden furniture. Tidy up the holes a little with a pen knife to get rid of the large burrs that might obscure the hole. Then position the wood somewhere south-facing in full sun. If you want to hang it up, you'll have to fix some string or wire to make a loop. Then just stand back, admire your handiwork and wait for some warm weather. With a little luck, you'll get a variety of bees prospecting and then filling the holes with pollen or leaves to lay their eggs on. You can watch them very closely and they don't mind and they won't sting you. If you make one, let us know how you get on and good luck with making your first bee hotel. With marathons, half marathons and park runs around the country cancelled and postponed, participants are keen not to let their training efforts go to waste. From first-time runners to avid sprinters, people across Sussex have used their imaginations and are making a marathon effort to save their local children's hospice, Chestnut Tree House. Some people may be struggling with noisy neighbours during lockdown, but not Nat and Debs. The pair live next door to each other and were due to take part in the Brighton Marathon on Sunday the 19th of April. It would have been Nat's first ever marathon and Debs' 31st, but sadly due to the coronavirus pandemic, the event has been postponed. So they ran the marathon in their gardens. had a lovely day and said it was loads of fun. They started early, were greeted with wonderful weather, and to celebrate completing their challenge, they enjoyed a lovely Gaza Prosecco on their driveways, while socially distancing, of course. Anne Brady, 68 years old from Crawley, has also set herself a challenge to run both the Brighton and London marathons in just over a week to support Chestnut Tree House, the Sussex-based children's hospice. Anne was due to take part in the 2.6 challenge by running 52 miles over eight days last month. But don't worry, she's sticking to the government guidelines and only having one outdoor exercise a day. Every Can Counts is a programme to promote drink can recycling across Europe. It aims to inspire everyone to make a difference by recycling their drink cans when they are away from home. This could be in the office or anywhere on the go from parks, festivals, sporting events, schools and universities. Every Can Counts are currently running a national competition for kids and big kids across the nation to design their own can with the chance to win a Nintendo Switch. Aiming to raise awareness of recycling, the competition can also be used as a fun homeschooling activity for parents whilst in lockdown. To enter, all you have to do is download the can design from the Every Can Counts website and get creative. All information on how to submit your design can be found online. Aldingbourne Country Centre have closed all of their enterprises, including the Aldingbourne Country Centre to the public and the people they support. However, with the use of technology and social media, the Aldingbourne Trust has adapted to a new way of supporting and interacting with people. Through creative and innovative ideas implemented, it is encouraging to see so many people thinking outside of the box and providing care differently whilst adapting to a new way of living. Dan Donovan, one of the people ACC support at MAKE in Portsmouth, has completed his food hygiene training online with a little help from Sarah Mitus, manager at MAKE. Regular activity packs with educational activities are being delivered to people's doors, ensuring the learning and support continues. One of the closed Facebook groups that they've created is called ACC Live TV with Jen and M, and this is presented by Jen Sears and Emily Fields, staff members at Aldingbourne Trust. The group was created to stay connected and engage with the people they support, staff and volunteers for their well-being. Every day, they spread happiness and cheer through live videos, quizzes, daily activities, and they've even had professional singers perform weekly. One of these singers is Sarah Wood from Funky Junction, a local fun soul disco band. Sarah has delivered exciting and professional performances weekly that has everyone dancing in their front rooms. With queues in the supermarkets and a lack of home delivery slots, many of us are turning to our gardens to provide the weekly fruit and veg. Sussex local editor Chris spoke with Barry Drennan of the South Downs Plantsman about getting the best from your garden in lockdown, as well as growing veg, even if you don't have a garden.
3: We spoke to Barry Drennan from the South Downs Plantsman about gardening during the lockdown. Hi, Barry. Thanks for agreeing to help out with the podcast. What variety of vegetables are easy to grow at home and for people without gardens can you recommend a way of growing veg inside have you got any tips on successfully growing veg
1: when i think of vegetables for indoors i I first of all have to think about tomatoes automatically think about tomatoes which are fine on a decent sized windowsill or perhaps on the floor of a sunny utility room or, or conservatory they need a good 7-8 hours of sunlight each day to get the best from them and of course heat because it's the heat that develops the the flavor in homegrown tomatoes uh, Don't forget to feed them. Um, Once the flowers have set, I tend to use a standard uh, liquid tomato feed every couple of weeks, which seems to work quite well. You could try the small tumbling tom variety in a medium sized pot on a windowsill, which will be, I guess, 18 20 inches in height to give you some idea of the space required. They're very, very lovely little small red tomatoes. If you have a bit more room, Five or six feet's worth of height type room. Sun gold uh, are a wonderful, wonderful flavoured tomato. It's a a real favourite of mine. I've grown it for many years. The flavour is quite superb. If you can get uh, some some sun gold tomatoes grown at home the first time you taste them you you will simply grow them every year. I think the trick is not really to be afraid of having a go. Tomatoes are not a mystery as long as the seed sowing instructions are followed and you don't let them dry out at any stage of growth which is critical you will get some fruit and believe me when I say that even if your first harvest is only small once you taste a homegrown tomato you, you will want to just grow more. Salad leaves, I I grow a lot of, Uh, and generally they're, again, very easy for indoors. Uh, They're also a very forgiving vegetable, especially the cut-and-come-again leaves, which, frankly, with most of the seed packets you're able to buy now, you can turn into cut-and-come-again. I haven't found one yet that that I cut once and dies off. Any decent-sized container, but really, but uh, ideally the long and narrow types um, are are perhaps a little bit more easy uh, to use. I grow leaves, salad leaves, and also grow rocket uh, in those types of containers as well. Um, And I use horizontally uh, cut off milk containers because they fit the space available really well, really easily. But don't forget to put drainage holes in the bottom of any container that you create. Finally, it's worth thinking about carrots. Perhaps not everyone's first thought for indoor veg, but I've grown them in over the years in buckets to give root depth for the longer varieties. Or you can simply sow the smaller or baby uh, carrot varieties in standard pots. I've had very good success with the variety Little Fingers grown in standard pots over the years and and they are a lovely sweet uh, taste, lovely sweet flavour on the tongue. As far as outdoor veg are concerned, a couple of easy ones uh, for me that I grow every year Uh, And are well worth trying and are not too scary. Um, The first one certainly would be French climbing beans. Uh, They're a real favourite. If you wait a a few weeks till the temperature of the soil has warmed up a little more, uh, end of June, first week of July, you can simply plant the seed directly into prepared weed-free soil. Three of them about 15 centimetres apart, and then just pop three tall canes tied together at the top to form a wigwam shape for them to scamper up and, and they'll reward you with string-free tasty green beans for, for weeks. I think I would recommend Blue Lake as a good variety to start with. They are very reliable, the Blue Lake, and full of flavour. They're also very good at resisting the, uh, the disease uh, diseases and, and pests. A Hardy variety. One of my other favourite vegetables is the uh, the courgette, uh, with so many different varieties available now. But uh, again, they can simply be planted. Uh, they're, they're large seeds. They can simply be planted into small pots, uh, even a yogurt carton or a loo roll inner will suffice. And when it looks too big for its container, planted it into a large pot or, or bucket or directly into the sunny border. Courgettes, uh, the leaves take up a large amount of space, so so don't worry if it takes you by surprise. Um, I grow them every year and I'm still amazed by the size of some of the leaves. Sunshine is important, so I always cut off a few leaves to allow the sun into the centre of the plant to help ripen the courgette. It's important with courgettes to to harvest them young. Apart from a better flavour, this will also encourage more to follow on. And again, as with tomatoes, keep them well watered and well fed.
3: Barry, would you name three of your favourite flowering plants which can be planted at this time of year and tell us why you've chosen them, please?
1: As you know, gardeners are always looking ahead and and looking at my potted dahlias tubers that are already sprouting. I'm getting excited about seeing their wonderful, large, rich, colourful blooms later in the season. It may be difficult getting potted dahlias this year, but you can order the tubers online, of course, and simply plant directly into your borders. I like to use some of my favorite perennials, gosh, uh, the rubecchia, the helleniums, uh, as partner planting to the effervescent dahlia blooms. And, of course, the rose. In my own garden, I have several of the David Austin English roses that repeat flower right through to October. In fact, last year I had blooms as late as the end of November. My two current favorites for scent and color would be Bell. Uh, Boscobella in the shrub rose form, Uh, I believe you can buy it as a a standard rose as well. And the wonderful Evelyn, uh, gosh yes, the the Evelyn rose is a a beautiful rose. It's too late now for for bare root roses, and although a little bit more expensive, you can of course buy potted roses online, and if planted fairly soon, they will um, still give you a a decent display of, of flowers this summer.
3: How has the lockdown affected your business? Are you doing things differently since the restrictions have been imposed?
1: The understandable concerns that many people have in our community about coronavirus has meant that the last couple of months have been a lot quieter than usual for myself and for many gardeners, I suspect. I have several customers who, despite the fact that working outside in their gardens means no contact, simply still didn't want to take the risk. And so asked me to postpone further work. I get this. I really do. And and I fully support the decision. I have empathy with how anxious and in some cases how frightened some people feel just now. Gardens will recover. Um, They'll bounce back later in the year. There's there's not much that can't be put right later in the season with a bit of applied and serious weeding, pruning, deadheading, etc. The reduced amount of of practical gardening that i'm doing is is however leaving space for more time spent planning both for my regular customers and for my own garden the most successful gardens i've worked in have owners who did two really important things i think they gave the garden time to mature and they had a plan either their own plan or one via one of the great uh, local design companies that we're lucky enough to have uh, here in west sussex i've i've come to understand how important and rewarding patience in the garden really is i understand that the lockdown has meant a lot more people have engaged with their gardens many for the first time i think this is a really great thing as the benefits to both mind and body are considerable tackling a, a 30 foot overgrown border may not be for everyone but i always think that gardening is a, a little bit like um, like music whatever level of involvement and competence y- you reach you really do get something out of it at, at all levels So to those of you who are just beginning, please do buy that packet of tomato seeds and give it a go. You really won't regret it.
0: Lots of parents, myself included, have suddenly and unexpectedly been launched headlong into the role of teacher alongside being a parent and having a job. And I can tell you, it isn't easy. For a look from the other side, though, Chris has been talking to Marion Smith, head teacher of Storrington Primary School, on her thoughts about the lockdown and how parents can help their children through these challenging times.
3: Marion Smith is head teacher at Storrington Primary in West Sussex, a local authority funded school with over 400 pupils. I started by asking Marion if she could give me a general update as to what's happened at the school since the lockdown started. So we have on average 30 children a day, um, a mixture of key worker children and
4: then those children that fall under the vulnerable category and they come from all across the schools we have got reception children who are five all the way up to year sixes. We've structured the school days um, so that in the morning the children are doing maths and English activities. Some of the older children are completing their online learning activities, whereas the younger children are having more structured um, learning activities. Um, and then in the afternoon, we are doing lots of creative um fun, we're doing lots of forest school, lots of getting outside, um, but through it all, underpinning it all, we've got a big emphasis on emotional well-being and just making sure those children that are in school every day, whose parents are doing those really essential jobs um, are okay and understand what's happening. It's a really lovely atmosphere in school um, and everyone's really pulling together teachers and staff are continuing uh, to work really hard. They are planning and responding to online learning. They're on a rotor, so staff are coming in to teach, teach the key worker and vulnerable children. Um, But alongside that, we've got all of the normal termly activities such as report writing, preparing for the next term, sorting out staffing for September, and all those kinds of activities are still happening. We're also preparing to welcome our new cohort of children who will be joining us in 2020, the reception children, and that takes an awful lot of work um, behind the scenes, so preparing and organising transition paperwork, speaking to nurseries about the children, speaking to families, um, and trying to understand, you know, the children who are coming to us. So that's also a lot of work that's going on behind the scenes. Um, A lot of staff's time is also spent working with our more vulnerable families, checking in, preparing extra work, ensuring that our families have access to food. Food vouchers have been really tricky. The government website has been very hard to get onto and can take a long time um, to load up. So that's taking the office staff um, a big proportion of their week. Um, And this is being juggled alongside um, looking after, obviously, our own children who are at home and can't be at school. So it's a very different kind of working week, um, presenting its own unique challenges alongside the normal
3: work that school staff have to complete. I then asked, what has been the biggest challenge to date since the lockdown has been in effect? I think the
4: biggest challenge um, has been adapting really quickly to a new way of learning, learning online and a new way of setting work and trying to get that balance right for all families. Um, Staffing's been a huge challenge. So we have staff who are self-isolating and shielding um, and obviously staff with their own families at home to look after. So, rotating staff on um, and having enough staff as our numbers increase with the children we have coming in. And then admin-wise, the biggest challenge has been free school meals, ensuring that our families who need uh, their meals and the money to buy meals have their vouchers. And we've been working with a very clunky government website, so that's proved
3: a challenge in itself. The relaxation of lockdown is a hot topic, and this is linked very much to school's reopening. Did Marianne have any indication outside of what has been reported about when this might happen? Will the school be reopening?
4: We we know as much as the general public with regards to the school uh, reopening, um, but as a staff we're very keen to get back to normal and to have our children and families back with us, but only when this is safe to do so, only when we have those government guidelines to follow, um, when government have thought about protective clothing, how the children are going to be distanced from each other, Um, and obviously we know as much as the general public at the moment, um, I think there'll be more news coming next week, and then I'm sure we will all be springing
3: into planning mode again. So, schools don't have any more news about this than the rest of us. In the meantime, the challenge of homeschooling for parents continues. I wondered what the school was providing and if Marion had any tips for parents to help their children with homeschooling. So, homeschooling has presented challenges for adults
4: and also for children and their families because you can never get it right for every single family. We've followed, um, I suppose... Our vision for home learning has been about, number one, making sure that there are a number of activities um, which parents and children can dip into when they want to and when is appropriate for their families. So we're providing a guidance, a mixture of creative activities, and then also consolidation of those key skills online, um, which families can use. Uh, We've got a platform where children can... Um, email and communicate with their teachers as well, and the teachers can email back. But I think underpinning all of that has been the children's well-being and families' well-being. At a very pressured time when families are also trying to work at home um, and juggle lots of external. External pressures and worries, so as well as the online learning we 've been putting up there are other platforms which some families have been dipping into, such as the BBC bite size, white rose maths um, and that 's absolutely fine it 's got to be what fits each family and we have very you know different families with different pressures, different accesses to technology um, yeah so it's it 's been it's been a difficult um a difficult thing to get right and strike the balance between but hopefully
3: we are getting there. It's been a big learning curve for everyone, I think. Lastly, I asked Marion if she had any words of advice and comfort for parents who are worried about their children's education at this time.
4: Yes, there must be lots of worried families and parents. I know, you know, I'm a parent myself, and it is an unknown future. What we want to make sure is that we are here for our families and our community, and we are here, and we will continue to be here. We're all experiencing hardship of some kind, but we've been really heartened by how our community has pulled together and supported each other, and I know we'll absolutely continue to do so. And schools across the country will do everything they can to ensure that transition back into school when it happens is positive and that children and families are supported. Yes, and there's been so many really wonderful examples of our school pulling together, messages of kindness, messages of support, and families linking up together to support each other so I felt really proud and um, yeah my heart's been warmed by how amazing our community has been.
0: Being stuck inside for such a long time during lockdown has its challenges and it's really important more than ever that we look after ourselves not just mentally but also physically storington based osteopath Nick Coish offers us his tips on keeping mind and body together. Nick can be found at nicholascoish-osteopath.co.uk.
5: So the country is in a state of lockdown right now. Storrington itself is perhaps not. There are still cars flying by, maybe at a lesser rate than the were before though, but that's another story. Anyway, today I wanted to give you something that you can take away to help your health whilst all this is going on. There are certainly some things you can do, even if you can't go out. You can still look after your health, and it's important now more than ever that you get yourself into a good state of mind, as well as physically. So one way you can help your mind is to try and forget all the fear-mongering that's going on. Stay away from social media, such as Facebook, and even the news to a certain extent. I know you need to know what's happening, but when you look into it too much, you get sensationalised news, and all the negativity builds up, which over time can create a state of anxiety. So we want to try and reduce that. Instead, in creating a more positive environment for the body, you relax more, the muscles are freer, your joints are easier to move, and essentially a healthy mind means a healthy body. One simple technique you can use, this is effectively a meditation technique which focuses on the breathing. To start with, get yourself into a nice relaxed place, sitting down preferably on the floor, chair or sofa, with your feet planted to the floor and resting your hands on your lap. Take a nice deep breath in for three seconds through your nose, hold for four and out for five through the mouth. There are different variations you can do, such as doing each stage for four seconds or another called the Wim Hof technique, which is a more advanced one. But for now, if you try the three, four, five one, it'll help you to get into a more zen-like state. So if you repeat the process three or four times with your eyes closed, simply focus on your breathing, forget everything that's going on around you outside world, and just relax into it. Then after three or four exhalations, allow your breathing to return to normal, and just observe your breathing almost from an outside perspective, without judging or trying to change it. Notice the ribs or abdomen expanding, and you can rest your hands on your abdomen if it's easier for you to feel what's happening whilst you do so. Then if you imagine the air entering your body, expanding the lungs, and then as you exhale, let all the tension release off, Feel your body relax as it happens. The muscles from your face, shoulders, arms, all the way down your body to your legs and your feet. Let it all relax off, every muscle you can think of. And just continue to breathe in and out for a minute or two, however long you want. One thing I'll say, if you're doing so, it's natural for thoughts to enter the mind. And that's okay. Allow them to come and go. Try not to focus on them too much, just keep reminding yourself to return your thoughts back to your breath to centre yourself. So by creating a relaxed mind that will help to contribute to a healthy body in turn. In order to keep yourself in peak health you need to keep an awareness of your internal organs and systems, therefore part of that is thinking what's going to benefit everything from a cellular level to keep the immune system strong, and that's where what you put in to feed and fuel yourself matters. Ultimately, food is fuel, so you should think of it less as what will temporarily satisfy the taste buds, and more on what's going to create the right conditions for a happier and healthier life long term. So what is the best diet? Firstly, one that you know that you're going to stick to, and secondly, think of it less of a diet, and more as healthy eating that will become your norm. The trouble with calling it a diet is that subconsciously this insinuates that it may just be something that's short term and has an end point, whereas afterwards you might just revert back to how you ate before. An example of one of the world's healthiest diets you can adopt is the Mediterranean one. This consists of an abundance of fruits, vegetables, whole grains, legumes and olive oil, and it favours fish and lean poultry over red meat. If you're not a fan of that, but still want to eat healthily though, if you stick predominantly to a plant-based, whole food, non-processed diet, then you can't go too far wrong. Research suggests that there are many benefits to following these type of eating patterns, such as weight loss, better control of blood glucose levels, reduced risk of depression and reduced inflammation in the body, which then lowers the risk of heart disease, stroke, Alzheimer's and joint pains, just to name but a few things. When altering your intake, it may be easier to consider what you can add rather than subtract, and you'll soon come to realise that that extra biscuit, chocolate bar or packet of crisps that you used to crave is no longer necessary or conducive to your new way of healthier eating. A few other tips to mention. If you are feeling peckish and need a snack, then nuts as well as carrot or cucumber sticks can be great alternatives. Also stick to a fruit-based dessert. And finally, be sure to eat slowly, savouring every bite, and do so whilst in a calm and relaxed state to aid digestion. The last tip is what's known as mindful eating, in case you're interested and wanted to research it more. Obviously, I've only really scratched the surface of nutrition here. It's a vast topic, and there are those more qualified than me on the matter, but hopefully that's given you a little food for thought, and provided you with some good bite-sized takeaways for starters. Apologies for the puns. That's all from me, and I hope that helps.
0: If you enjoyed this episode of the Sussex Local podcast and would like your community or charity event featured in our next episode, we'd love to hear from you. Please email us at info at or get in touch via our website. Charity and community notices are always published free of charge in our magazine and on our website sussexlocal.net where you can find loads of other Sussex news and sign up to our newsletter. We should just say that the companies mentioned in this episode have given their information free of charge and Sussex Local has not charged a fee for mentioning them. Thank you for joining us. Until next time. The script for the Sussex Local podcast was written by Georgia Brown and presented by Cat Sims. Theme music was composed and performed by Jimmy Sims. Audio production and mixing also by Jimmy Sims. And the podcast was produced by Jeff Nutbean from Sussex Local.